thinking through what it means to be a cross-centered Christian. So let me explain a little bit about what I think the Bible would want us to understand with that idea, or at least what I, I think the Bible has for us in terms of the gospel. When Jesus Christ, in Luke 14, calls people to follow him to receive life, he would phrase it something like this. Take up your cross and... So let's not miss that he says, take up your cross. In order to follow Jesus, I think oftentimes we think that we can follow him without a cross. That we merely just embrace Christ and are saved, and that there is no cost to following Christ. He then cautions us in Luke chapter 14 to consider that cost because it is pricely. It is expensive. It is painful sometimes to follow Christ. And he would say something like, if any of you wants to build a tower, wouldn't you consider whether or not you have enough financial resources to build the whole tower? Lest you get halfway through the construction and you can't finish and you become a laughingstock in your community. Or perhaps like a general going to war. Whether or not you're going to win the battle determines whether or not you sue for peace or you say, bring it on. If you know you're going to lose, you want peace. If you know you can easily conquer the enemy against you, it's his loss to come against you. And so you say, bring it on. Now, Jesus used that as an explanation for what it means to follow him. That is, anyone who truly wants the gospel of Jesus Christ must recognize that to follow Christ, we get what Christ gets. That he came and he tells us that the servant is not greater than his master. If he suffered, then we also will at least be called to follow him, whatever that has. And that may include deep suffering. It also may not require suffering, but at least the willingness to bear with Christ the cost of holiness and righteousness and gospel ministry and influence within our homes and communities. These things may require cost. We come to Philippians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul explains in somewhat of a biographical format in verses 4 through about 8 that he himself has carried a cost. And he says all of those things that were formerly precious that he gave away in order to own Christ, he now considers a, a small loss. He actually calls them garbage because now he has Christ. The treasure of the gospel of Christ is this, that no matter what he costs me, I have him, I have more than the whole world if I have Jesus. Therefore, those things that I had to abandon in order to take the cross of Christ are well worth it to lose because I have Jesus. He continues by then challenging us in the following verses that to know Christ, to be united with him in saving relationship and fellowship will include with it suffering because if we get Christ and his suffering, we also get Christ and the resurrection. There is no hope of the resurrection if we abandon Christ for our own gain in this life. If for the sake of pleasure or circumstances we refuse to suffer, we also lose Christ and the resurrection. Now that's a sobering challenge, isn't it? Because it is so easy to navigate our life in a way in which we get what we want, that in so doing, if we lose Christ... We lose the hope of the resurrection. So what types of cost 
might God call us to? I want you to come back with me to Philippians chapter 1. Just as we're, we're entering into the context of the latter part of chapter 3, it's valuable for us to know where he's concerned. Look with me in verse 27 of Philippians 1. He says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. Verse 29, it has been granted that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, but also suffer. Now, he is using that phrase suffering in the context of suffering from people who are going to experience destruction. So he's saying, in your walk with Christ, there are going to be people and circumstances that press you and cause you to suffer for the sake of Christ. They are not believers. Don't be afraid. Now, I don't think most of us should be afraid of our neighbor who just doesn't like us because we're Christians. I think he's talking about something more severe than that. In fact, he's saying, the suffering you've seen in me is now happening in you. There's probably real economic and maybe personal persecution perhaps even risk to health and body, that they're experiencing because of the unbelieving world in which they live. And he's saying, don't be afraid. Walk worthy of Christ and of his gospel. So the, the suffering he's speaking to the Philippians about may include personal danger. It definitely includes something that's causing them fear at least economic danger is part of the challenge. Look down in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2. It's more than that. It says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. He's speaking to the believers now. Having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others as more significant as, than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So some of the suffering he is calling this church to embrace is just the suffering of selflessness, of, of pursuing the good of another, of being willing to sacrifice time in order to minister, sacrifice finances in order to help the needs of another, to sacrifice the freedoms you may have in Christ in order to give away those rights to protect the spiritual health of another person. There are just simple costs to dwelling together in unity with God's people that he asks us to give up. Some of you might experience this on a Sunday morning. It's probably too hot or too cold in here for some of you. No matter what we do, someone's uncomfortable. <laughs> Can I just simply ask you to bear that cross? <laughs> oh, it's amazing. I get done, and I'm like, man, I'm so hot. I'm sweating. My wife's like, I was freezing the whole time. There will never be a happy temperature here for our family. Where there will always be someone who has to sacrifice. And I, I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but there's a real sense to that cost. But how much more real, meaningful sacrifices so that others might be encouraged and strengthened and brought into God's grace and helped in it. Dwelling together in the harmony of God's family requires some sacrifice. And if we are unwilling to look to others' interests rather than our own, we are in fact rejecting the call to take up our cross. And I realize temperature might be something simple and small, 
It's amazing how many times those little unwillingnesses to sacrifice spark a fire that rages in disunity. So we come to chapter 3, and I am going to give an overview of this section that we're going to walk through, and I think it will be encouraging to you all, and then next week we want to dig a little bit deeper into some of the theology that he's explaining. But as we consider chapter 3, I want you to look down with me in verse 15. In my um, ESV, it feels like I'm jumping to the middle of a paragraph. I think it's helpful to recognize there's a small division here, and we're going to read through the end of the uh, chapter 3. Verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, Join in imitating me and keep your eye on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame. With mindset on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. I want you to consider that in this text as the apostle lays out for us a pattern of cross-centered living. That he initially challenges in verses 15 and 16 our thinking Then in verses 17 through 20, he challenges our behavior. And in verse 21, he then holds in front of us our future. And in such a way, I think we can actually not only understand, but be encouraged to strengthen our resolve to follow Christ by taking up our cross. cross Cross-centered thinking. We first start in verses 15 and 16. Our personal theology must be cross-centered. Now, when I say our personal theology, I mean the way we view the gospel and our application of it and how we think about life. You've probably met people who think that following Christ means life will be easy. Right? Like, if I choose Jesus and embrace him, then my marriage will get better, my kids will obey me, my finances will improve, and the grass will be greener. And so we choose Christ. And then what happens? I hope it doesn't always get worse, but sometimes life is challenging. Our kids don't obey. The grass is actually brown, and our marriage isn't filled with sweet harmony. There's actually the struggle of two believers still challenged to subdue their flesh and live in grace and forgiveness and love towards one another. Our, our lives are not simply the, the Bed of roses that maybe at salvation we were promised by a well-meaning but uninformed believer. Okay, so when we talk about a personal theology, I want you to look in the text and see how Scripture challenges you as you follow after Christ. Look in verse 15. Let those of us who are mature, so he's already telling us maturity is like this. Think this way. So he has just gotten done saying, here's what it means to know Christ. It means that we are conformed to his suffering so that we might also share in his resurrection. Right? So to know Christ means to be united with him in fellowship. 
And just like if I'm united with you as we are walking somewhere, we're experiencing the same weather, the same sun, the same goodness. Likewise, if we're walking with Christ as he walked, we will experience the pressure and the persecution of sin and temptation and the world against us. If you don't want to suffer with Christ, then you also will not experience the joy of his resurrection. Do you think that way? Because that's the challenge. Let those of us who are mature think this way. What way? That my life has been already built on a template of Christ. And therefore, as I walk, I resist temptation. I pursue the goodness of other believers around me. And sometimes that comes at deep cost. And no matter what it costs, I will walk with Christ. So if the sun is shining on my life, as I'm walking with Christ, I thank God for the sun. But if the clouds of suffering come, I dare not walk away from Christ to shelter myself from the cost of the suffering rain. That's the thinking that is challenging the believer because inevitably, as in our culture, suffering is seen sometimes as the displeasure of God. Suffering is something seen to be avoided or something that we should try to navigate around. And certainly Paul is no person who finds that pain is actually something he should pursue. Instead, he pursues Christ. He is attached to Christ. And if pain and suffering are part of that, then he will not leave Christ to escape that pain and suffering. That's the mature thinking. Look again in the text. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Can I just point out both the patience and the grace of this counsel? Sometimes God calls you to a path of pain. When do you avoid pain and suffering in your Christian life? When do you escape suffering? So let's just imagine that you have a job that's obnoxiously painful. When do you resign to find a better job that will give you more peace? I think there's a sense in which as a Christian I'm living in a life where God has called me to suffer with him and I don't always know when I should stick it out and when I should wave the white flag of quitting. And so I think the Apostle Paul is very gently suggesting that God's word reveals it to us so we know that this is going on at least. God tells us when to quit and when not to quit. So there is no way in which Paul is thinking, you should quit doing what God tells you to stay in. Right? Some of us are tempted to quit things that God says, don't quit that. Well, that's not what the Apostle Paul is speaking of. He's not speaking of a sinful exit. But sometimes, like getting a different job, it's not sinful. But for the sake of Christ, maybe you should stick it out. And we can all imagine that when financial pressure hits, whether or not you give sacrificially to the cause of the Lord or whether you hold those finances back, there's, a, there's an element of wisdom there, but there's also just the call to sacrifice for the kingdom of Christ. Remember, those in Macedonia, which would include Philippi, were praised for giving out of their deep poverty to the mission of Christ, which means that someone is sitting at their kitchen table, metaphorically at least, counting up their shekels. And they're saying, we don't have enough to make ends meet. And someone in that relationship, someone in that marriage said, but we should give anyway. And out of deep poverty, they gave away what they could not afford to give away because they cared more about Christ than the needs in front of them. They gave out of deep poverty. And God was honored. 
I think in those situations, the pastoral counsel from the apostle is, I will let the Lord work that grace. I am not going to impose upon you to optionally suffer. But God will reveal that. I don't think he is at all speaking of some of the ways in which we sinfully escape suffering. So, I mean, just think about a parent who uses anger to, cha- to, to change the behavior of a child because they're uncomfortable with their child's behavior. That sinful anger gets that child to align their behavior with what makes the parent feel better. God is never okay with that. But there are times where righteous discipline would have been the right thing. And that might help that child. God will reveal how to live in such a way that you embrace the cost of the cross, the cost of Christ, when the scripture is less than black and white, when it's less than clear and requires discernment. So those of you who are discipling others, be cautious that you don't make mandates and expectations of them. The scripture doesn't. But I would say also be careful that you don't make something optional that the scripture doesn't. God will reveal the, 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 the wisdom elements that require time and spiritual maturity, but don't ever excuse sin so that someone can feel better in their life because the very thing you may be calling them to do is stop following Christ. So he, he finishes this explanation of practical theology, that is, your personal thinking must be, I will embrace the cost of Christ no matter what in this life. It requires of me. Look in verse 16 how he finishes up. Only this. So this is a concluding summary of these last two verses. Let us hold true to what we've attained. In other words, it's almost like at the in, in verse 4-1 or 3-1 where he's saying in 3-1, rejoice in the Lord. In 4-1, stand firm in the Lord. In 3-16, he's saying do what? Don't let go of Christ. And maybe I could say better, don't avoid a cross-centered life. If Jesus Christ has come, take up your cross and follow me. When that cross gets heavy, when the pain of that cross is causing fatigue and despair, and you want to quit yourself of the cross of Christ, he is saying, don't hold true. Jesus Christ has never deceived us in calling us to follow him. He's always been explaining to his disciples and to others, if you want to come after me, you must embrace the cost. And now speaking to a church that is suffering, Paul writes from prison while he's suffering, hold fast to Christ. You've already understood what it means to know him, to know the power of his resurrection, to have this within your lives. Don't let go. Some of you have experienced this, whether it's in athletics, maybe it's in academics, but you have a coach or a teacher saying, don't quit, you're almost done. Finish. Finish well. You almost feel the apostle saying that, saying, hey, listen, I know God's hand has allowed you to go through hard times. Don't quit. And some of you may need to hear that message. The worth of Christ, the treasure of knowing Christ, the treasure of forgiveness calls upon each one of us. Don't quit. It's hard. It's hard to be patient when you're being hurt. 
It's hard to offer forgiveness when the injury is repetitive. It's hard to be kind when people are treating you poorly. Don't quit. This reminds us that we do these things for Christ's sake. Oftentimes in marriage counseling, I'll have someone come to me and say, can you help fix my marriage? It's so unbearable. And the motivation for coming to get counsel is the marriage, not Christ. Because if your only hope of getting help for you is fixing the pain of your circumstances, understand that the perfect Savior who never sinned, who lived flawlessly, did not have any rescue for the cost that sin was putting on him. And sometimes God calls us to suffer like Christ. The problem is not necessarily something we can fix. We just endure by trusting God. We do it for Christ's sake, not for relieving of circumstances. And I think this comes clear in the next section. So our personal theology needs to be right. Does God call you to pay the price of following Christ? You walk with him. No matter where he leads, you walk with him. Never abandon Christ. So then we come to this next section where he gives it more practical feet. Brothers, join in imitating me. Hey, imitation is a very practical thing, especially when he's saying, look at, look at how I live and do what I do. He would say later in other epistles, follow me as I follow Christ. He continues on, he says, keep your eye on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So he's talking about how we behave, right? That word walk is a metaphor used throughout the Old Testament for our behavior, as Enoch walked with God in Genesis 5, Noah was a righteous man and walked with God in Genesis 6. Abraham says he walks before God Almighty in Genesis 17. The people of Israel were called to walk with God in Deuteronomy 28. Isaiah praises the person who walks with God in Isaiah 33. And the psalmist prays that the Lord would help him to walk in his truth. It's a metaphor for how we live. It's a, it's a practical application of what we know theologically. Living out what we've already embraced doctrinally. Live by this, he says. Walk this way. And how are we supposed to walk? Paul says, like I've walked. Look around you at those who are godly who've walked this path before you and be like them. One of the gifts God has given us is godly people around us. People who don't necessarily mentor us by telling us what to do, but who do it. Finding godly people who have shown us how to live in wisdom in a world where there isn't much. Put your eyes on them and help them lead you in how you walk. My wife and I were talking about this about a week ago, or so I suppose. We are talking about child raising, and she just mentioned one of the reasons she does what she does as a parent is because her parents did it. And they loved the Lord, and they were wise. And so when someone asked her, like, hey, where did you learn this? This is amazing. This is super helpful. She's like, well, that's what my mom did to me. That, that is exactly what the Bible calls her to do. That we should be looking around for godly examples under suffering, godly examples of parenting, godly examples of employees who are the type of employee that pleases the Lord in a dark work environment and say, that's who I should be like. That's how I should respond. That's how I should pray. God has granted us 
godly people, whether it's parents or leaders within our church, that we might see how Christ would do it were he in our shoes. Jesus Christ never had a cell phone. It's hard to read the Gospels and be like, that is the way I should handle my cell phone. But there are probably godly people within this church who have exampled for us the right use and application of God's wisdom to things like cell phone, to the freedoms we have in this world. So look to them to practically see. Now he explains, he kind of gives a dissection here of the different ways of living. We have a very um, individualistic and a very cross-centered person described for us. Look in verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears. Now he describes them. Look at the description, because he's probably speaking about people who are formerly sitting under his preaching ministry as members of the church of Philippi. In other words, it could be that there are people in this room that will soon be described like this, who we think are faithful believers. Carefully. They are walking as enemies of the cross of Christ, having rejected the cross pattern of living, they are now enemies of it. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame. That's a sobering indictment against someone who formerly claimed Christ. This is why it is so important that we remind each other of a theology that says Christ is worth it. Christ is worth holding on to even though he come with a cost. Staying true to Christ might cost you a lot in this life, but he is worth it. To turn away from Christ is to become his enemy. It is to give in to the appetites and desires of this world. It is to, it is to leave behind Christ and ultimately result in the end of destruction. It is, there, there's a play on words that, that I won't go too far into, but the idea is uh, there, when their full mature end of life comes, it will bring death. The one who said, I am mature, the maturity of that investment is death. Their God is their appetites. Their glory is in their shame. The thing that won them away from Christ is shameful, and they boast in that. They value that. They joy in that rather than in Christ. They have, they have lost sight of what is truly precious. What a sad indictment. Look at down in verse 20. In contrast to that is the person who has this cross-centered life. What do they know? They know their citizenship is in heaven. In other words, they may not experience the, the privileges of their citizenship, but their status is secure. I, I, may not, I may not look like I'm rich, but I have treasures in heaven. And they dare not exchange and give away the treasures of heaven for the pleasure and the simplicity of the things in this life that will pass away. They dare not. And we wait for a Savior. Notice we 
wait for the rescuer, the Savior, to come. But we know that this life does not offer us rescue from suffering and sin. Jesus Christ is the rescuer, and so we wait. And what is the condition of this waiting? Like Christ, who suffered his whole entire life, and in the moments when suffering was at its apex on the cross, he was faithful. When did Christ rest? When he sat down at the right hand. When he rested from his work. Jesus Christ has called us like him to follow in his steps. And we work. And we suffer sometimes. And we are faithful in this life because we are still waiting when we will join our Savior in eternal rest. Do not quit because it's hard. Do not quit because of the cost. Do not quit because sin says it is good. Sin is a liar. And Satan has ever deceived. And his ways are death. His end is destruction. And he calls to our appetites to satisfy themselves now. And the cost is when the Savior comes, we are not waiting for him but for his judgment. And he does not come as a lover to restore us to peace and to give us rest. He comes as a righteous judge who brings from his righteous omniscience perfect execution and justice. I have noticed our kids are finally getting smart in this way. They have learned that it is best and advisable when we've been gone for a while, that to come home to a messy house is a lot less pleasant for them than for their parents to come home to a clean house. I'm fearful that Christians, we are so negligent that we think God will be okay with a messy house, which only means we've abandoned the Son and we only have a false hope. And when he comes and he finds our house in disarray, when he finds our life filled with sin, he will not be just a chastening parent. He will be a judge. The delight of the believer is that their status is secure. Their grace has been purchased by the blood of Christ, so they're eager to see him. And then that final thought, I think, leads us to our third and final point, is there's a promised outcome. What happens when the Savior comes, the one for whom we wait? Verse 21, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, there is a parallel going on, but at least we should stop and recognize that in this life, he describes our current existence as humble. In other words, you and I right now are in this position of lowliness. Right? Our humble bodies are going to be transformed into a glorious body like, like his. So, so recognize what he's just suggested. Throughout this text, he's calling us that to be united in saving grace with Christ is also be, to be united in sanctifying suffering, right? Like, like, I don't get saving grace 
and then disentangle myself from Christ to avoid his suffering, and then reunite in the resurrection, like swerving through traffic to get around a semi. Like, I cannot avoid this. If I am united with Christ in his saving grace, I'm also united in his suffering. And then I'm also united in his resurrection. That's a theology of all of chapter 3. What we would really, really like is to be united in saving grace, step away while we have to suffer, and reunite in the resurrection. That is not how this works. Christ is worth it. He calls us to be so captivated by the goodness of his grace that were the whole world to turn against us, were we having to brave the fires of hell for our every day of life on this earth, if we were to suffer the hatred of every human, were we to suffer all of the tortures of every relational dysfunction, Christ is worth it. He's worth it. Not merely for the resurrection, but because he himself is worth it. But because he is glorious and because he is good, we also get the resurrection. Look again in verse 21. We'll be like him. This will happen by the power that enables him to subject all things. That includes sin. That includes death. That includes suffering. That includes you. That includes Satan. That includes the curse on this world. He will rescue his. He will make this earth new. He will subdue every enemy. He will break the power that holds fast this world because he is the one who subdues all things. Now, it is not, it is not insignificant that he is, in verse 21, echoing chapter 2. You remember Jesus Christ, who in verses 6 through 11 suffers by humbling himself and becoming obedient. And your and my body is humble. And then as Christ is glorified and God highly exalts him, so too our humble body is raised to be a glorious body like his. And then in verses 10 and 11, Jesus Christ in chapter 2 is lifted up and all people, all angels, all demons kneel before him. And he shows his sovereign will and power over all things. And here at the end of chapter 3, he says this happens by the power of the one who subjects all things. The point is not insignificant. Maybe it's multiple or multifaceted. The thing that's causing your suffering today is under the control of the King of Kings. He is causing this world to move in its place. And he permits suffering to enter into your world. It, it, it leaks through his fingers with intent and design that it would accomplish all that he intends. I don't think he is responsible as the author of sin, but he is responsible in the sense that his plan has architected everything in this world, including the death of his son, the suffering of Jesus Christ. Do you think then that your suffering is out of his control? 
He will not let you suffer above which you are able by his grace to endure. 1 Corinthians 10. He will, with that temptation, provide a way of escape. He allows suffering to happen that we might be strengthened and resolved to trust him. He allows temptation to happen that we might strengthen our endurance, James tells us. James would also remind us he does this so that we might learn wisdom. If the God who let his son die did so because it was good and right, in fact, it's obedience that causes Christ to go to the cross, and he calls you to come follow his son, it's an act of obedience for you to follow. The one who subdues all things certainly could rescue you, but sometimes he's too good to do so. Let me, I know this is a poor analogy. I have a certain daughter who does not like math. Maybe they all don't like math, but I know one who especially doesn't like it. I want you to imagine that as a kind and loving dad, I rescue this child from math. I rescue her. Have I really done good to her? No, in fact, I would think that you can all agree with me very simply that I've done injury by not pressing her to work and to do something she doesn't enjoy that she might be more competent and better, not only in doing math, but also in the character of pressing into the thing that is unpleasant for the good that it brings. By being, in some sense, sovereign in my home, I can imagine my daughter looking at me and saying, Dad, if you're good, you would not let me go through this misery. You should love me enough to rescue me from math. But as a loving dad, I would respond back by saying, well, that's why you're not dad. Because you make bad decisions that hurt you. And I am too good to relieve you of the suffering for a temporary relief, but a lifelong hurt. And here the one who is able to subject all things says, trust me. Was it good for Christ to suffer? It's a complex answer, but I think we can all say there is glory behind it and wickedness that caused it. Right? So we can recognize that within our homes, within our workplaces, the thing that causes the suffering may be evil. Maybe it's just a circumstance like bad health of a sin-cursed world. And we can suffer knowing God could stop the suffering, but he is too good, too wise to bring suffering into my life with no ultimately good purpose. Are we all on the same page? Because that's where this text ends, reminding us that like Christ, who is called by God's goodwill to suffer, God in goodness calls us and summons us to invest in the treasures of heaven, to experience the glories of eternity. And lest we quit math and be cursed to lifelong stupidity, we should likewise, in something so, so much less treasure than Christ, where we can see goodness in it, be able to say, dear God, if following Christ brings treasure that help me to never quit when you call me to suffer. Lord, help me not to abandon the path of righteousness for the sake of my own comfort. Lord, help me to discipline myself in time lest I be a dad who knows 
the insides of football and a game and do not know the heart of my child. Father, do not let me be an expert in the stock market and not know John 3.16. Lord, help me not be a professional TV watcher. and an ignorant Christian. Lord, help me not to love vacation more than I love my wife. Help me not to love work more than my home. You see, these things cause suffering sometimes. And so we can avoid because it's easier. And what do you lose when you avoid suffering? year to unravel the history through which Christ suffered, we would lose everything. But he would lose glory. He would lose the emphatic declaration of his love. God so loved the world. He would lose the clear proof of his righteous wrath against sinners because Jesus Christ suffered under that wrath And it is not because God is unloving, but in fact because he loves his holiness that wrath was commissioned against Christ. He will not flinch at causing the sinner who is holding on to his sin to suffer his wrath. God is sovereign. This is with intent. I want to end by taking you to Hebrews chapter 12. I just want to land on verse 3 and then be done. Some of you are, you're tired because you've been suffering for a long time. Maybe the Lord has called you into a lifelong bout with physical illness. Maybe you have relationships in your life in which there is no righteous escape and so you suffer. Perhaps the Lord has called you to coworkers who need the gospel of God. And instead, they mistreat you and shame you for holding the gospel of Christ. Perhaps the Lord just called you to be a mom. And that is really, really hard work. Every time I have to be Mr. Mom for a couple days, I am very, very thankful for my wife. It is hard work to be a good mom. So consider what Hebrews 12 tells us. Consider him. We could almost hear the echo of Philippians 3. Rejoice in the Lord. Consider him. Consider the Lord. Consider Jesus Christ. Look at his death. Look at his suffering. Look at the busyness of his life as he had so much ministry in front of him he couldn't even eat, the beginning of Mark says. Consider him who in exhaustion and weariness trudged to a private place just to pray because he could not pray without interruption. Consider him who broken down and physically beaten still said, Father, forgive them. Consider him. Consider him. Well, why would we consider him? Because he endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Why would we consider him? Because after, after suffering hostility, He was still faithful. There was not one point at which all the way up until his death, he could not have taken himself off the cross and immediately stopped the pain. 
when the sinner said, if you are the Son of God, why don't you take yourself off the cross? They had it right. Why didn't he? Because like us, the Father has called him to suffer. So why would we consider him? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And suffering wears us thin fast. Some of you have experienced the same injury 20 times, 30 times, 100 times, 100. And you're getting the place where you're weary and faint-hearted. You're tired and you want to quit. Consider Christ. There was no quit in him. Where did his resolve come from? Well, he knew the God who sent him to the cross was faithful. He knew he was good. He knew his father intended good. He knew that his father promised joy and honor for those who obey him. He knew, and he considered the cross a small price to pay in order for the treasure house that God had in store for those who are faithful. And so Christ endured. And so we, on the other side of the benefits of the cross, can see the goodness of the Father in sending Jesus Christ to die for our sins. And we can see the glory of the Son who endured that pain, endured that suffering, and now Jesus calls to us and says, Come, follow Will you follow him? If you have been sold a bill of goods called the gospel and it never told you that you have to follow Christ, it's a false gospel. You cannot get saved without Christ. But if you have him, you are saved. So stay with him. Do not let him go. Do not be tempted to sin. Some of you cannot go 10 minutes without looking at trash on your cell phone. You are not staying close to Christ. Repent. Cling to Christ. Some of you cannot go a few minutes without snapping at your spouse and tearing them down. Repent. Listen, your spouse may deserve it. But it is unrighteous for you to be the one voicing it. Let Christ rebuke them. Be patient. Suffer in kindness. Suffer by speaking the truth with gentleness and love. Some of you are filled with covetous greed all the time. Repent and cling to Christ. He may have called you to poverty. He may have called you to lack, but he is good who's called you there. Stay with Christ. God may have called you to singleness. Do not be jealous of marriage until God brings it into your life. If I knew how good marriage was, I frequently joked. I would have tried it a whole lot sooner and messed up the whole thing. I'd try to be married like at 12. That would have been bad news. Be patient. Trust God. I do not know what path God has called you to, but he has called you to walk it with his son. Do not stray into the world. Your soul is on the line. Stay with Christ. He has called us to be cross-centered in our thinking, he has called us to be cross-centered in our living. And when those of us who follow after Christ live that cross-centered life and have that cross-centered doctrine, we are guaranteed the resurrection that comes after the cross. Stay with Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word.
You are good and you are true. You are faithful to your people. You have never broken a promise. You have never failed to deliver on the goodness and the grace that is in store for those who trust in you. Now, Father, I ask for our church's sake that the grace of faithfulness would be ours. That if Christ calls us to the valleys of the shadow of death, we will not fear because we know there you will be with us. And if we are beside the green pastures, Lord, I ask that it's because you've led us there, not because we have strayed from you to find the promise of green pastures that are never there without you. Father, help us to be faithful. Lord, you are so good to us. Oftentimes, our life does not feel like it's that difficult. And so when it does become very difficult and very painful, often we feel as though you have betrayed your promises to do us good. Lord, give us the thinking that recognizes that oftentimes suffering is in store for all those who would live godly lives. Suffering is in store for all of those who would boldly tell their neighbors, their friends, and their co-workers, and their family of Jesus Christ who has died for sinners. We know that suffering is in store for all those who follow Jesus. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to think truly and then if suffering comes, help our feet to follow Christ. That where he goes, we would follow. And that when the weight of the cross grows heavy, Lord, we trust you for the grace to keep walking and bearing our cross. Because we know that we are waiting for that day when our Savior comes and transforms our humble bodies into glorious bodies like his. And we know and trust in the one who is able to subject all things. The powers of hell are under his control, and we trust in him. And Father, I pray that you'd strengthen our faith because it's weak. Help us to know you are good, to trust in your sovereignty, and always be faithful to our Savior. It is in his name and for his glory we ask this.